you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, then absolutely take that one home. It is our gift to you. And uh, make a friend of that Bible. First Peter chapter 3. Sunday morning we're studying First Peter uh, together. <clears throat> Allergies. <clears throat> First it's in the spring, then it's in the fall, then it's in the spring and it's in the fall. Now it's in the spring and the fall and a little bit of summer, but also in the winter. And then now it's... A I can't complain. I went 20 years without him living here, so no complaints. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and he preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water." There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not water baptism, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. How we love it, how we love your wisdom, how we love the life that simple obedience to your word and the power of the Holy Spirit has produced. It makes us hungry, Lord, for it to impact our lives and characterize our lives in an even greater measure. And we pray, Lord, that you would take your great, eternal, outlive the heavens and the earth truths that are found in these verses and take them off of the printed page and give them a living, eternal place in our minds, and our thinking, and our hearts, our feeling, Lord, and our spirit, our relationship with you. Bless us, commune with us, be the teacher this morning, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Peter gives us some very, very needed instruction regarding how to overcome an especially stubborn persecution that is being uh, meted out against us or an especially illogical uh, persecution that is being directed against us as Christians. The Christians that Peter wrote to in this epistle were in the midst of a very, very uh, fierce persecution uh, a, a frightening persecution. The Roman Caesar at the time, a man by the name of Caesar Nero, had used them as a scapegoat, placed the blame upon them for fires that burned uh, large sections of the ancient city of Rome, fires that he was responsible for. And this lie of his was believed in large part by the citizens of the empire of Rome and thus began a very terrible and a very unjust persecution of Christians within the Roman Empire. And overnight they go from being a very small, uh, almost overlooked minority within the Roman Empire to now becoming the object of a systematic, secular government-endorsed persecution. 
Previously, the persecution against Christians was almost uh, completely limited to the religious Jews. But now added to that persecution at this time is a persecution that uh, comes from the great Gentile empire at the time, and that is thrown into the mix. Now, sometimes we can sit here and someone might uh, listen to all of this and wonder, what in the world does this passage or this book have to speak to uh, us uh, as Christians here in the United States of America? Because as yet, we're not being thrown to the lions. But it's very good to remember that this Bible was not written only to American Christians. This Bible is written for Christians existing all over the world in every conceivable human condition. And just because we live in a land where our liberties are protected by law, by constitution, protected from physical persecution in a way that much of the rest of the world isn't, doesn't mean that God shouldn't be able to pluck us up from the United States of America and plant us anywhere He wants to in this world, and we can hit the ground running. We don't disregard passages that we think, well, this is going to minister the most to somebody who is in uh, some other part of the world, but it really has nothing to do with me, so I don't need to give it the time or the, the discipline or attention that it requires to become a part of my walk with the Lord. We want to be as, as spiritually mature and, and knowledgeable of the Bible, and we want to be as Christ-like as any other Christian anywhere else in the world. And, and so, in much of the world today, Christians live under a threat of death for their faith. And it's not just from religious people like Muslims, though that is the, by far the largest group uh, of, uh, of persecutors, but also some Christians live in danger of persecution, physical abuse for their faith by their very uh, governments and the corruption of their governments in in some parts of the world. But though we are not thrown to the lions physically, we live in a nation where the persecution of our values and our beliefs uh, are government-protected, and in many cases, government-endorsed and government-enabled. That's the nation that we live in. You look at the stubborn persecution of our values and of our beliefs that come out of government, protected by government, has their origin in our government concerning abortion or concerning homosexuality, gays in the military, redefining of marriage, protection of all manner of sin. And you look at how Christianity is continually attacked and disparaged uh, in the media and in the entertainment uh, world. You look at how uh, also how Christianity and Christians are attacked and persecuted in our colleges and our universities where even Christian professors are denied tenure. They are denied promotion. In some cases, they're fired for holding a biblical worldview uh, because of their faith in Christ. So we live in a world that is... Uh, hides behind a banner of tolerance, but it is uh, very, very intolerant indeed. And, and it is, grows more and more bold in its intolerance and the targets of, uh, that, that it wants uh, to remove. The tolerance crowd, whether I, if I, even if I wasn't a Christian, the, the groups that are hiding behind the tolerance mantra, um, to me, it, I would be very, very frightened watching that. They are frighteningly intolerant. And to watch what happens when these kind of people get a hold of power and then how they wield that power to systematically destroy every other voice is a, is a frightening thing to watch. The nation that we live in is, again, becoming more and more antagonistic toward, towards Christianity and Christians were not on the level that much of the rest of the world is, but it is increasing. And the principal reason for it 
is because we are the largest group of people in our country resisting uh, their attempts to impose an unbiblical morality upon all of us. So in the Western world, that Christianity is the influence in that way. But the point is this. Though we're not being thrown to the lions physically as Christians in this nation, the attempt to silence us and to be rid of us is strong. It's growing stronger. And just because the persecution is more subtle in its forms doesn't mean that it's any less fierce or any less malicious on the parts of those that are doing the persecuting. If the truth were made known, uh, I think that many would throw us to the lions if they could and think they were doing a good thing in doing so. So even though the laws of our land protect us from physical assault in our nation, they do not protect us from a continual persecution and assault upon uh, our hearts and upon our minds and upon the beliefs that we hold uh, more dear than life itself in our lives. And so Peter tells us here in general that a godly life is the best means for putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men, chapter 2, verse 5. And that's a general principle that he lays out. And most often, if we live a good life, if we live a godly life as a Christian, it will ultimately silence the false accusations that are being made against us, also against us individually, also against Christianity as a whole, and it will make people ashamed for holding those views and, and believing those false accusations. But though that is the general rule, and we understand it to be the general rule, Peter also recognizes that it's not exclusive. There are exceptions to that rule. It doesn't always work out that way. Some persecution is not based upon being misinformed about Christians uh, or based upon believing a lie, but it's, that persecution is based upon something far, far darker than that. And Peter recognized it. In verse 13, he's basically telling us that it is rare, this persecution that will not be stopped or silenced by a good and godly life. It is rare by comparison, but it is real. And so in verses 14 to 22, he gives us instruction concerning how to overcome especially stubborn persecution that's being directed toward us. What to do when your good life doesn't silence the lies or end persecution. Now this whole, the application of this is not only uh, wonderful and, and necessary for survival and perspective on the part of Christians that live in other parts of the world, but it's also true of many Christians in the United States of America and in Modesto and in this church, even here this morning, where you have people who come to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they believe that He alone has paid the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of sins and that salvation, a relationship with God, everlasting life, all of that is received by putting my trust in the great thing that He has done for us on the cross. And they do that. And when they do that, they are the first in their family for generations. Their family, as far as you want to go back in the genealogies that everybody knows in the families, have been involved in some other religious system that declares that salvation is on the basis of works and not on the basis of faith in Christ. And so they put their faith in Christ and they explain the reason why they've done so. And now they are at odds with their entire family. And sometimes that persecution becomes a very determined, strong persecution against that individual. So this is of great value to us this morning. And so Peter tells us, first of all, that even if Christianity, verse 14, provokes this kind of persecution in the hearts of evil men uh, toward us, it is still the greatest life a person can live. And that's the truth about the Christian life. 
It is the greatest life a person can live. It is the greatest way that a human being has the privilege of spending their life. There is no life lived outside of a faith in Christ that provokes even the smallest bit of envy or jealousy in me. I know that I am living the greatest life that a person has the privilege of living. And I certainly don't envy the lives of those who persecute me. Even for all of the rejection and the persecution that's involved in being a Christian, I wouldn't trade it for the whole wide world. I wouldn't trade it for anybody else's life. For any person that is lost and apart from Christ, whatever their power, whatever their wealth, whatever their fame, whatever their accomplishments, you think about what we possess as Christians and possess uniquely. We possess the peace of knowing that we are right with God. Our lives have a meaning and a purpose to them that only the Christian life has. We have a living hope in the face of death. We have a victory over death. We are living life as God has intended life to be lived. Not only am I in a right relationship with God, but when I come to know God and I begin to obey His Word, it puts me in a right relationship with the whole world. It puts me in a right relationship with all of creation. And so when the Bible says for me not to lie and I engage in a life of telling the truth, I'm in proper alignment with all of creation. A person that lives the life of a liar, that's a very complicated life. There are consequences. Creation works against it. It's to fight against creation. You think about to, to live in obedience to the Word of God related to sexual purity. It puts me in line. It puts me in a proper relationship with how I've been created. You've been created. The whole world and the universe has been created. And when a person violates those commandments of God, it puts me at odds. I'm not only fighting God, but I am fighting the whole created universe. And, and so to engage in sexual immorality, which is absolutely rampant all around the world, it's not limited to anywhere, not only is there the sexual diseases that have to be dealt with, the physical diseases, but then the harm that it does to the mind, the harm that it does to the heart, to your insides. And to just simply live in obedience to God's Word, I'm in right relationship with everything as opposed to, to fighting against even how I've been created. I, I am... I have, we have a relationship with God in terms of speaking of privileges. And the relationship is real. And it's daily. And it's moment by moment. I can stop in an instant. I can stop right now and begin to pray to God. At the drop of a hat, any time, day or night that I want to. That's the relationship we have with God as Christians. And he hears our prayers, and he's eager to hear our prayers. And he tells us to enter boldly into his throne room to receive the grace and the mercy that we have need of and that his throne is a throne of grace because of our faith in Christ. And I live a life that is right as a Christian. At the end of the day, when we put our heads on the pillows as a Christian, there's the realization as we've lived that, uh, that day obedient to God to be able to lay my head on the pillow and to know that I am not only in a right relationship with God, but all of my actions, all of my words, all of my deeds have done only good in the human beings that I interacted with that day. I'm not only right with God, but I'm right with my fellow man. And on and on and on we could go. You ask yourself, how valuable is peace? How valuable is the peace of knowing that I am right with God. To have that confidence when I'm driving, when I'm getting out of bed, when I'm going to bed, when I'm reading, when I'm doing anything, when I'm at work, to know at this moment I am right with God. I'll tell you, it's priceless. 
And when you possess something that is priceless, then you are fabulously wealthy. And we are fabulously wealthy as Christians. True wealth. Not this monkey business of what the world defines as wealth and people drop dead of all kinds of diseases and they're being crushed and medicated and their minds are being blown and the stress of the body in order to get this and because they're trying to live up to some definition of, of, uh, of what is real wealth in the world. You look at... God speaks of what real wealth is, what really makes us wealthy. And these are the things that make a person truly wealthy. And the rest of it's gravy, more or less whatever he wants to bring into our lives. I especially love one of the prophecies of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Balaam. We, when we speak of Balaam from the book of Numbers... Uh, and we use the term prophet for him, we are using the term loosely. And, uh, but God uses it for him, and so we'll use it as well. So he is a man who speaks for God at that time in human history. And there's a man by the name of Balak who was the king of the Moabites, a country that bordered the promised land of Israel. And as the children of Israel were approaching his border, he decided to hire Balaam to come and pronounce a series of curses upon the children of Israel so that they would not go through his land and into the promised land. Balaam shows up on the scene and he has every intention of doing what Balak has hired him to do. He's going to be made fabulously wealthy if he just would be obedient to that. And so he goes before this crowd of the children of Israel that are out on this great plain. Two to three million of them encamped, and he looks at them with his eyes. And as he goes to begin to prophesy over them, time after time, God will not allow a curse to come out of his mouth, but repeatedly he professes and proclaims a blessing over God's people, over the children of Israel. And in that Numbers chapter 23, somewhere in there about verse 10, in that first prophecy that he uh, proclaimed over the children of Israel, as he looked at them, he said, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. And that's how I feel. I only want the portion of the righteous in this world there isn't a single unsaved life in this world that I would trade my Christian life for. Not for any amount of money, as I said, or fame, or accomplishment, or title, or reputation, or any of it. Whatever the future of God's people, of Christians in this world, whatever our portion is in this world the remaining period of human history. That's where I want to be found. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to die. That's where I, among the people that I want to be numbered and to be associated with and to be remembered as being a part of. And we are rich to be numbered among God's people. And the reason for all of this is because I view who I am and what I have because of Jesus to be of infinitely greater value than anything or everything that you can have without him. And I know that you feel the same way. When I came to know Christ, I came to know him principally because I cannot live life without meaning and without hope. What is the ultimate meaning and purpose of life? What hope do we have? What does it matter if I accomplish everything in the whole wide world and there is no victory for death? What does it matter what we do if death has the final say in our life? What kind of life can anyone live? Of course you're going to stay stoned and bombed. No thinking person can go through life and truly enjoy anything without these larger questions being answered. And then getting in line with what the answer is. And Jesus has given us meaning and purpose and hope in an incredible measure, an incomparable measure. And so no matter what 
others do to me or my nation or my government, they will never move me from the realization that as a Christian, I am living the greatest life a human being can live. And so it is for each of us. It's no wonder that Peter would write this. He was the one in John chapter 7 when Jesus had these great crowds that were, John chapter 6, when Jesus had these great crowds that were following him at the time because he had a way of taking five loaves and two fish and feeding thousands. Well, that's a, that's a meal ticket. And so they began to follow him in these numbers that were too great to even be numbered. And Jesus did that for a short period of time. And then he began to speak to them about what it would really mean to follow him or be one of his disciples in the world. And he began to talk about the hard things that would be required of them to do that, the rejection that they would experience, the kind of commitment that would be required. And here is Jesus. He's speaking to the crowd, just like I'm speaking to you today. He's speaking these things to the crowd, and they just start, they turn their back and walk away from Him. The Son of God, Creator of the heavens and the earth, they did not like the message. And they turned on their heels and they began to walk away from him until the crowd is largely dispersed and left. And Jesus is left standing there almost alone with his disciples. And he turns to the disciples and far from apologizing for ruining the momentum of his ministry and the size of the crowd that was attending the church that day, he turned to them and he said to them, will you go away also? This is what's required to follow me. No sense in finding it out later and then getting torpedoed because you didn't realize the commitment that would be required. This is the truth. Are you going to leave me also? And Peter speaks for the whole group and he said, Lord, where would we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. Once you've entered into the Christian life, you are spoiled for everything else in life. Once a person becomes a Christian, I mean, don't become a Christian if you, if you don't want certain things to be spoiled for you. It's, wonder, it's a wonderful spoiling, by the way. But once you, we enter into the Christian life, that is life at its best. Not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally with God. We are engaged in life as God intended it to be lived. And once we have experienced life as the very best that it can be, this side of heaven, you can never go back into that world and be satisfied. You cannot, you can try, but a Christian has been forever spoiled from ever being able to backslide, go back into the world and enjoy their previous sin to the same measure that they enjoyed it before. You won't be able to do it. Don't waste your time backsliding. It's all, it's all ruined for you. Wonderfully ruined for you. Why? Because God hates you or what? No, because we have experienced the best. And nothing compares to the best. We'll never be satisfied with anything less. The second thing that he tells us in verses, end of verse 14 and then through verse 16, is that it's important for us in this kind of stubborn persecution not to be afraid. He says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And the word trouble in the Greek, it means to stir up, to trouble to agitate. And very often it's used to speak of, of an agitation or a turmoil emotionally speaking. Don't be afraid of their threats or, nor be troubled. And this is a quote. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 where the Lord was speaking to Isaiah not to be afraid of their threats or troubled as he was being persecuted for righteousness' sake, and God was encouraging him in that. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That's God's instruction to you this morning in the face of stubborn, irrational, protracted persecution. Don't be troubled and don't be afraid of their threats. Now, why, why would that produce a peace in us? Because God's saying it. If I came up to you in the middle of a big problem and I said, listen, don't be troubled. 
be at peace. <laughs> you could say, you and how much money in your bank account? You who wants to pronounce that on the situation. But this is powerful because it's God's instruction to us. The fact of the matter is, God will take care of our persecutors in his own way and in his own time. But he will do it. And we have to allow him to do it in his own way and in his own time. I was reading the news this week, and maybe some of you saw it as well, where in one of the most, one of the famous museums in uh, Paris, France, was having an art exhibit. It's amazing what you can get away with under the banner of art. Uh, but they had this big presentation there. And a part of this uh, artistic expression uh, before the, the whole presentation was completed, in the background was a great, gigantic portrait of Christ. And before the, the evening was over, that portrait was covered with feces. That was a part of the demonstration. And so uh, provoked, righteous anger provoked. We're not talking about a, a highly Christian country in France. There are Christians there. It's a Catholic country. But a group of young people, younger men and women, so incensed by this in a righteous anger, they went into one of the performances in an attempt to disrupt it. And we understand that. You look at it and you, and you say, I notice they didn't put Muhammad's picture up on, on the wall. Uh, they're not brave enough to do that. And, and so they're selective in the whole thing. And I understand where we want to jump in, we want to interrupt something, we want to protect God's reputation, and we're going to see in a moment there's a way to step in and speak into a situation. And so I understand where the hearts of, of those Christians were to jump in and, and try and stop all of this. But God doesn't need our help in that. Uh, God could take and he could, he could just... Kill an entire, it could kill everybody in a room in an instant. When something like that goes on, and the whole culture wouldn't matter, it's the same thing related to our country when they had the exhibit, again, so-called art with Jesus on a crucifixion immersed in a bottle of urine, and that was called art. But what happens is, as this provocation against the only sinless life in human history, when people will do this and there is no clamor against it, there is nothing that even assaults the conscience of those that don't know God, then it is a witness against all of the society. It's a witness against the world that you are living in a world that you ought to be afraid to live in that is willing to take this kind of liberty and be this kind of an affront to God. So we look at it and we say, they'll get away with it. If we don't burn the museum down or we don't cut somebody's head off or something like that, they're just going get, to keep getting away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. Uh, Jesus does not need to be defended like Muhammad needs to be defended. They are, one is God and one is a man. So in, in this whole situation where it looks like, boy, this person that's persecuting me or this person's doing this against God or whatever, that they're getting away with it, they're not getting away with it. Because the God who could judge it in an instant, in his wisdom looks at it and says, I will judge it as fully as it deserves, but I will do it in my time and in my way, and a lot of that's going to happen at the end of the age. And so here is this God where he, we look at him and sometimes he's so patient. I like it with me, but I don't know about you and the rest of the world. And so he works and here's somebody that's being uh, persecuting me. And it's just a simple prayer that I offer to God. Listen, all right, it's just me, it's them, and it's just a thing. You take them out. I'm okay. This is all solved. What's so complicated about all of this? We're not talking about the Pythagorean theorem here or anything complicated. This is a no-brainer. Anybody can see this. And so we lift it up and we expect it to be taken care of in a moment in time. And then it doesn't get taken care of. 
And you've experienced it over and over and over again in your life. It just seems like this is so obvious. Why is God not taking care of this? And then one day he takes care of it. And the light goes on and we realize, oh, it wasn't just about me and one other person. There are a lot of people watching this thing. He was knocking out one, two, three, four, five, six things all at the same time. And then when we see his way and we see his timing, we say, Lord, I am so thankful you ignore my prayers when they are ignorant and they violate what you know to be best. And so God does. God, there's no reason to be afraid. God is at work in the situation, but he'll do it his way and in his time. And in the meantime, Peter tells us to put our focus on what we can control. We, there are certain things we can't control. Those are under God's control. But there are things that we can control. So what do we do instead? Verse 15, further sanctify the Lord in your hearts. In other words, don't resort to vengeance, but instead look at this time as an opportunity to go deeper in my relationship with the Lord. And this person is tapping me. The relationship that I had with God last week or a year ago, that is not a deep, deep enough relationship with God to handle what this person's bringing in my life. So I'm either going to take him out or I'm going to go, need to go deeper in God and establish a deeper relationship. We're forbidden to take him out. So the choice is to go deeper in our relationship with the Lord and deeper in our commitment to the Lord. And that's what these kind of situations offer us the opportunity to do. And then when we do that, when we commit to going deeper in, in the Lord, we discover a level of intimacy in a relationship with God that we wouldn't otherwise know except for that person or those people that are harassing me for my faith. Sometimes it's not until you lose all friends and the only friend you got is God, <laughs> that we really come to appreciate what a good friend he is and what a faithful friend he is. And then Jesus comes in as we go deeper in our relationship with the Lord. He counsels us and he encourages us through the injustice. And then in the midst of all of that, we come to appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross in a way that we wouldn't otherwise, as we realize that the same people that he was opposed by and persecuted by for righteousness' sake, these are the same kind of people that are persecuting me, only they did it to him in a degree that we'll never know. And it was by going deeper in his relationship with the Lord at times like this, that caused the Apostle Paul to write in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And if my enemies or this world want to force me to choose between forsaking the Lord in order to gain their acceptance or going deeper in my relationship with Him in order to stand against their persecution, then the choice is very, very easy. And rejection and persecution requires a deeper commitment. And Peter calls on them and us to then make that commitment. The second thing that he tells us to do there in the latter part of verse 15 is to use this kind of a season as an opportunity to tell others about Christ. So people watch the injustice. They watch the bully from some position of power, from some from position of wealth, defame you, ruin your reputation, take advantage of you, work you to death, how whatever form it takes mock you for your faith, whatever form it takes around the world. And people watch it, and they do, even if they don't know the Lord, they begin to see something that it, they recognize it as a sin against conscience. This person's gone too far here. And even they will want to come and to console us related to the unfairness of the situation. 
and to encourage us. And then when they come to us and speak to us of the unfairness of the situation, if we just come down to the level of a pity party and begin to think, yes, that's right, this is terrible, this is so wrong, I'm glad somebody else can see it as well, and we tumble into all, all of that, that kind of, of a place, then we're going to waste one of the greatest opportunities that those kind of circumstances give us in life and that is the, the potential to share our salvation, to share Christ with those that have come to us, to speak about the fact that, no, I am responding to this in this way because it is to be like my Savior, and then to speak to them about their own souls. The Apostle Paul continually practiced this. He's, it's, it, it is amazing to watch him in the book of Acts. He had people persecuting. Talk about stubborn persecution. They followed him from one city to the next city to the next city to the next city. You'd be hired, you'd be tempted to hire some kind of an ambush for them. And these were religious people that were after him. And continually, when this opposition came against him, he would use as an opportunity to make a stand and share the gospel with people and their need for salvation. I think about Acts chapter 26. He's been falsely, wrongly, and justly incarcerated for years for his faith by the Roman government because of accusations made against him by the religious Jews. He finally gets an audience before Herod Agrippa, King Agrippa, and his wife Bernice, and also the Roman governor of Israel at that time, a man by the name of Festus. And he gets, is brought into this room in the city of Caesarea, which was a, a cap, a Roman capital in the land of Israel. And he's brought into this great judgment hall and all of the most powerful Roman citizens in that part of the world are there. And when they bring Paul in before the crowd, he doesn't speak about the injustice of Roman justice. He doesn't talk about how unfairly he's been treated, how it's hurt his feelings, all these different kind of things. He stands up in front of that crowd and he gives him his testimony. This is what I was before I came to Christ. This is how I came to Christ. This is the life that I've been living ever since. And he proceeds to challenge and invite the entire assembly that is there to follow him in what it is that he has done in giving his life to Christ. And he recognized that this kind of situation offers a unique opportunity to share the gospel and it has a powerful impact as a result. When someone looks and says, all right, I'm not going to use this to just head into self-pity or get my faction over here who hates them as much as they hate me because of the treatment, but to look for the opportunity to share our faith. And then he says to do it with meekness as opposed to doing it with arrogance or pride or with anger. So we're to be bold in the sharing of our faith in a situation like this, but we're to treat other people with respect. I like the word winsome as it relates to a Christian, whether in an apologetics ministry or whether we're individually sharing our faith with other people. He tells us it's to be done with meekness. Again, Paul in Acts chapter 26, he is a study in respect for authority and for human beings in that environment when he shared with them what he shared with them. Sometimes you read about meekness and gentleness and that kind of thing. We're going to get killed. They're going to run us down with tanks. What's this gentleness, meekness thing? One of my favorite Proverbs in the whole Bible is Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15. Solomon wrote, By long forbearance a king is persuaded, and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. The truth spoken in gentleness reaches into places in a human life. It reaches a deeper place in a human life than truth spoken in anger 
or in irritation. In fact, the truth spoken with a gentle tongue, because God says, I'll come alongside that and I'll make that powerful. He says, a gentle tongue breaks a bone. The truth spoken in gentleness will be as hard to ignore as a broken bone. And you can't ignore a broken bone. It reminds you every time you move. And so God says, this is how that gospel is to be shared. And then he said in verse 16, speaking of things that we can do, that we do have control over, is that we're to share that that gospel by maintaining a good conscience. How do we maintain a good conscience? He tells us there at the end of verse 16, by good conduct. What's good conduct? By living a life of simple obedience to the Word of God. A good conscience is a conscience that I'm not being convicted of sin. Or when I am convicted of sin, I make that sin. I take care of it, make it right between God and myself. I confess it. I ask for his forgiveness and I get right until my conscience is holy and my conscience is whole once again before the Lord. And the point is our sharing of the gospel will never be fully effective if it's not coupled with a godly life. And there's nothing like a, a, a strong conscience in the midst of, of deep persecution. It's one of the greatest feelings in the Christian life to know that I am right with God. I am right with my fellow man at this moment in time. And yet this persecution is being meted out against me. I'll tell you, that feeling inside of being right and having a clear conscience is a powerful thing to possess in a time of persecution. And we possess it by doing right and being right. He tells us finally in verses 17 to 22 that if God allows it, uh, suffering for doing good is better than suffering for doing Evil. So God allows suffering for doing good. So we need to remember in suffering that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, verse 17. Now that tells us nobody escapes suffering in this world. You might not have noticed that, but nobody does. If you do what's right in this fallen world, then there are going to be those who oppose you. And the only other option is not to do right in order to escape that kind of opposition. And so then if I choose to do what's wrong, well, there's consequences and there's problems with that. Everybody's going to suffer in this world. It's just a matter whether I'm going to suffer for doing good or I'm going to suffer for doing right. And he says it's better to suffer for doing good. So, And what is the great proof that Peter points us to for the truth of this statement? It's better to suffer for doing good than suffer for doing wrong, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verses 18 to 22. And he's essentially communicating to us this, if we're in the middle of persecution, that if God was able to overwhelm and work together for good the single greatest injustice in human history... And that is Jew and Gentile alike. The creation doing to the Creator. The crucifying of the perfect, sinless Son of God. If He could take that persecution, that injustice, that wrongdoing, and overwhelm it, work it together for good to provide the whole world with salvation, how much more able is He to take the much smaller persecution that we faced and have it left in his hands and work it together for good as it relates to our life as well. He is able to overwhelm everything, even persecution that's directed against us, and thus we are to trust him to do that. The devil, sinful man, evil man, wicked men, did not have the final say in Jesus' life and in his ministry. God had the final say related to his life. Resurrection had the final say related to his life. And no man or no woman 
no matter how powerful they might be, will ever stop God from working any and all persecution in our life together for good and toward his purposes in our life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That's the big point Peter is making here for perspective. And we can believe it. And as Peter is thinking about Jesus, it's funny, the writers of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit, they get to writing about Jesus and they can't help but do an elaboration. So he does this beautiful elaboration upon Jesus as he thought about how God overruled all the persecution and evil from men that were directed against Jesus and then used it to provide us with a salvation that we love. He said, verse 18, he suffered once for sins. He died a violent death. The just for the unjust didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. Verse 18, the end of it through verse 20, man's persecution didn't have the final say. During the three days and three nights between his death and his resurrection, we're told Peter tells us that he preached to those spirits in Hades. It's a way of saying that Jesus, when he died, he died physically, but his spirit never died. He never ceased to to exist. What did he do in his spirit during those three days and three nights? He went into Hades. And he preached to them there. What is Hades? It's a waiting place. There's an eternal lake of fire that is the, the, that is the eternal judgment. That's what that is. That's called Gehenna. Hades is something entirely different. Hades, Jesus described it in Luke chapter 16 and speaking of the story of Lazarus and the rich man. There was a very, very wealthy man who fared sumptuously all of his life, Jesus said. And there was a, a, a man by the name of Lazarus who was content to just eat the crumbs for nourishment that fell off of his table. And one day they both died. And they both went to Hades. This is before Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. They both go into Hades. Hades has two compartments. One side is Abraham's bosom. Abraham's over on this side, and he's with Lazarus. And the rich man is on the hot side of Hades. Even Hades is hot, and that's not even an eternal lake of fire. And he's on the hot side, and he looks, and he says, Father Abraham, he says, why don't you send Lazarus over here just to drop a water on the end of his thing, put on my tongue, I'll just all, it's all I want. So he wants to boss Lazarus around. And Abraham said, there's a gulf between where you are and where we are that no man can pass over. Death sets that. And in the Old Testament, all salvation in the Old Testament still had to do with Jesus. We look back in faith upon what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and we receive salvation. In the Old Testament, it was looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah that was promised in the Scriptures, and in faith looking forward to His coming for the forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. And those who died in that relationship with God went into Abraham's bosom, the side of faith. He is the father of faith. And those who rejected God and lived for themselves, all of that, they went into the hot side. And Jesus went into that environment, And he preached to them for three days and for three nights. I have no doubt he brought out the Old Testament. All of it is a beautiful picture of himself, a foreshadowing of him, the Messiah who was to come. And then to speak to them of his sacrifice upon the cross, that he had come as the Savior of the world, just as God had promised. And then at the time of his resurrection... Those that had lived in faith looking ahead, he cleared out Abraham's bosom and took them into heaven at the time of his resurrection from the dead. No one could go there before the sacrifice had been paid for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why there was the waiting place. And that place called Hades today, it exists. Abraham's bosom is empty. That group is in heaven now. But the other side, the hot side, it continues to exist And it continues to enlarge by the day. And Jesus went there and he preached, didn't preach the gospel to them, but he preached himself as the Messiah and led the captives from their captivity. Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, wherefore he saith, when he, 
ascended on high, speaking of Jesus' ascension. He led captivity from their, uh, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now, that he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Peter also mentions in verse 20, Noah as an encouragement of our faith. And so only eight people in the whole wide world believe God and got into that ark. And that ark is a picture of salvation. Everyone else continued in their sin. They continued in their indifference related to God. Only eight people in the world were right about God, about salvation, about sin, about right, about wrong, about judgment. And the whole rest of the world was wrong. And so you look at the world we live in today where the religious minority, the biblical minority, grow smaller and smaller and the enemies of God grow stronger and stronger, but it will not stop God's judgment any more than it did at the time of Noah. And it's better to be persecuted and mocked in 120 years of the building of that ark, to be mocked and persecuted for righteousness and be safe from the judgment to come than to be numbered among the persecuting and the indifferent majority, and beheaded for judgment. Eight plus God is a majority. God is a majority. doesn't matter how many of us walk or don't walk with God at the end of the age. We want everybody should walk with God. But God's plan and His Word is going to be true and it's going to unfold. And then Peter spoke of water baptism as an antitype or a shadow or a picture of our salvation in verse 21. That just as the flood washed away the former wickedness of the world and provided a fresh start for the world to, to live for God, so too, because of Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection, we've been washed of our sins and given a fresh start to live for God. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. But what water baptism represents, that saves everybody that's going to be saved. When a person is water baptized, they're put down into the water. That represents our former condition before we came to know Christ. We're dead in our sins. The baptizer lifts us up out of the water. That represents God raising us from our formerly spiritually dead condition. Not to continue to live the old sinful life that we once lived, but now to live an entirely different life, a life after God, a life like Christ. We've been given another chance to live a life that's completely different from the one that we once lived, to live a life, the life that God intends for us. And so water baptism, or the, the uh, water baptism is a picture of the, of the salvation that is, is ours and that we have received. Now, no one in their right mind would have jumped from that ark, the means of salvation, the picture of salvation in the Old Testament, it's all a picture of Christ, no record of one of those eight jumping overboard into the floodwaters. And so Peter is basically saying, we must not allow persecution to drive us back into our old lives, but to stay faithfully in our ark of salvation in Jesus, no matter what the cost in terms of persecution. And Jesus' life, his death, his ministry, his burial, it all had a happy ending because against all human odds, it ended with him in heaven at the right hand of the Father, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And then a little different way, but just as surely our life, no matter what the opposition, ends in that same place as well, in that heavenly scene. The Christian life is the greatest life a human being can live. Don't ever lose the sense of privilege related to that. It's the greatest life a human being can live, and we're living it. Praise the Lord for His grace. And all of this ends in the glory of heaven, which will go on forever and ever and ever, and all of it has been made possible because Jesus was willing to endure the unjust persecution of men, trusting God to overrule it and overwhelm it and work it together for good. The same thing that Peter here calls on us to do 
for God's purposes and for his glory. This is what we need to know, and this is what we need to do in the face of stubborn persecution. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, again, as we leave your word now, in terms of closing it up, we thank you for it. We thank you for what's important to you. We thank you for the amazing detail of your word. Lord, you know that when these seasons come into our life, it's not going to be a time for us to live by generalities. You know that these are the specific things that will allow us to stand for you, not just in Modesto, California, but anywhere you want to plunk us in this whole wide world to live for you and to live for your glory. And we thank you for this instruction, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.